Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the complete H.P. Lovecraft podcast. We can but apologise for our extended trip into the abyss, but after all, one never knows when the darkness may come. We have, however, returned with not one, but two terrifying tales, as relayed to us from the telepathic minds of the old ones. So please... Sit yourself down in a chair by the fire, relax, and open your mind to the cosmic mystery of our first story, Nyarlathotep. <laughs> Nyarlathotep, the crawling chaos. I am the last. I will tell the audient void. I do not recall distinctly when it began, but it was months ago. The general tension was horrible. To a season of political and social upheaval was added a strange and brooding apprehension of hideous physical danger. A danger widespread and all-embracing. Such a danger as may be imagined only in the most terrible phantasms of the night. I recall that the people went about with pale and worried faces and whispered warnings and prophecies which no one dared consciously repeat or acknowledge to himself that he had heard. A sense of monstrous guilt was upon the land, and out of the abysses between the stars swept chill currents that made men shiver in dark and lonely places. There was a demoniac alteration in the sequence of the seasons. The autumn heat lingered fearsomely, and everyone felt that the world, and perhaps the universe, had passed from the control of known gods or forces to that of gods or forces which were unknown. And it was then that Nyarlathotep came out of Egypt. Who he was, none could tell, but he was of the old native blood and looked like a pharaoh. The fellahin knelt when they saw him, yet could not say why. He said he had risen up out of the blackness of twenty-seven centuries and that he had heard messages from places not on this planet. Into the lands of civilization came Nyarlathotep, swarthy, slender and sinister, always buying strange instruments of glass and metal, and combining them into instruments yet stranger. He spoke much of the sciences, of electricity and psychology, and gave exhibitions of power which sent his spectators away speechless, yet which swelled his fame to exceeding magnitude. Men advised one another to see Nyarlathotep, and shuddered. And where Nyarlathotep went, rest vanished, for the small hours were rent with the screams of nightmare. Never before had the screams of nightmare been such a public problem. Now the wise men almost wished they could forbid sleep in the small hours, that the shrieks of cities might less horribly disturb the pale pitying moon as it glimmered on green waters gliding under bridges and old steeples crumbling against a sickly sky. I remember when Nyarlathotep came to my city, the great, the old, the terrible city of unnumbered crimes. My friend had told me of him and of the impelling fascination and allurement of his revelations, and I burned with eagerness to explore his uttermost mysteries. 
My friend said they were horrible and impressive beyond my most fevered imaginings, that what was thrown on a screen in the darkened room prophesied things none but Nihilathotep dared prophecy, and that in the sputter of his sparks there was taken from men that which had never been taken before, yet which showed only in the eyes. And I heard it hinted abroad that those who knew Nihilathotep looked on sights which others saw not. It was in the hot autumn that I went through the night with the restless crowds to see Nihilathotep, through the stifling night and up the endless stairs into the choking room, and shadowed on a screen I saw hooded forms amidst ruins and yellow evil faces peering from behind fallen monuments, and I saw the world battling against blackness, against the waves of destruction from ultimate space, whirling churning, struggling around the dimming, cooling sun. Then the sparks played amazingly around the heads of the spectators, and hair stood up on end whilst shadows, more grotesque than I can tell, came out and squatted on the heads. And when I, who was colder and more scientific than the rest, mumbled a trembling protest about imposture and static electricity, Nihilathotep drave us all out down the dizzy stairs into the damp, hot, deserted midnight streets. I screamed aloud that I was not afraid, that I never could be afraid, and others screamed with me for solace. We swear to one another that the city was exactly the same, and still alive, and when the electric lights began to fade, we cursed the company over and over again, and laughed at the queer faces we made. I believe we felt something coming down from the greenish moon, for when we began to depend on its light, we drifted into curious involuntary formations and seemed to know our destinations, though we dared not think of them. Once we looked at the pavement and found the blocks loose and displaced by grass, with scarce a line of rusted metal to show where the tramways had run. And again we saw a tram car, lone, windowless, dilapidated, and almost on its side. When we gazed around the horizon, we could not find the third tower by the river, and noticed that the silhouette of the second tower was ragged at the top. Then we split up into narrow columns, each of which seemed drawn in a different direction. One disappeared in a narrow alley to the left, leaving only the echo of a shocking moan. Another filed down a weed-choked subway entrance, howling with a laughter that was mad. My own column was sucked toward the open country, and presently felt a chill which was not of the hot autumn. For as we stalked out on the dark moor, we beheld around us the hellish moon-glitter of evil snows. Trackless, inexplicable snows swept asunder in one direction only, where lay a gulf all the blacker for its glittering walls. The column seemed very thin indeed as it plodded dreamily into the gulf. I lingered behind, for the black rift in the green-litten snow was frightful, and I thought I had heard the reverberations of a disquieting wail as my companions vanished. But my power to linger was slight. As if beckoned by those who had gone before, I half floated between the titanic snowdrifts, quivering and afraid, 
into the sightless vortex of the unimaginable. Screamingly sentient, dumbly delirious, only the gods that were can tell. A sickened, sensitive shadow writhing in hands that are not hands, and whirled blindly past ghastly midnights of rotting creation, corpses of dead worlds with sores that were cities, charnel winds that brush the pallid stars and make them flicker low. Beyond the world's vague ghosts of monstrous things, half-seen columns of unsanctified temples that rest on nameless rocks beneath space and reach up to dizzying vacua above the spheres of light and darkness. And through this revolting graveyard of the universe, the muffled, maddening beating of drums and thin, monotonous whine of blasphemous flutes from inconceivable, unlighted chambers beyond time. The detestable pounding and piping whereunto dance slowly, awkwardly, and absurdly the gigantic, tenebrous, ultimate gods. The blind, voiceless, mindless gargoyles whose soul is Nihilathotep. We now move to our second story of this evening, The Picture in the House. Searchers after horror haunt strange far places. For them are the catacombs of Ptolemaeus and the carven mausolea of the nightmare countries. They climb to the moonlit towers of ruined Rhine castles and falter down black cobweb steps beneath the scattered stones of forgotten cities in Asia. The haunted wood and the desolate mountain are their shrines, and they linger around the sinister monoliths on uninhabited islands. But the true epicure in the terrible, to whom a new thrill of unutterable ghastliness is the chief end and justification of existence, esteems most of all the ancient lonely farmhouses of backwards New England. For there, the dark elements of strength, solitude, grotesqueness and ignorance combine to form the perfection of the hideous. Most horrible of all sights are the little unpainted wooden houses remote from travelled ways usually squatted upon some damp grassy slope or leaning against some gigantic outcropping of rock. Two hundred years and more they have leaned or squatted there, while the vines have crawled and the trees have swelled and spread. They are almost hidden now in lawless luxuriances of green and guardian shrouds of shadow, but the small paned windows still stare shockingly, as if blinking through a lethal stupor which wards off madness by dulling the memory of unutterable things. In such houses have dwelt generations of strange people whose like the world has never seen. Seized with a gloomy and fanatical belief which exiled them from their kind, their ancestors sought the wilderness for freedom. There, the scions of a conquering race 
indeed flourished free from the restrictions of their fellows, but cowered in an appalling slavery to the dismal phantasms of their own minds. Divorced from the enlightenment of civilization, the strength of these Puritans turned into singular channels. And in their isolation, morbid self-repression and struggle for life with relentless nature, there came to them dark, furtive traits from the prehistoric depths of their cold northern heritage. By necessity practical and by philosophy stern, these folk were not beautiful in their sins. Erring as all mortals must, they were forced by their rigid code to seek concealment above all else, so that they came to use less and less taste in what they concealed. Only the silent, sleepy, staring houses in the backwoods can tell all that has lain hidden since the early days, and they are not communicative, being loath to shake off the drowsiness which helps them forget. Sometimes one feels that it would be merciful to tear down these houses for they must often dream. It was to a time-battered edifice of this description that I was driven one afternoon in November 1896 by a rain of such chilling copiousness that any shelter was preferable to exposure. I had been travelling for some time amongst the people of the Miskatonic Valley in quest of certain genealogical data, and from the remote, devious and problematical nature of my course had deemed it convenient to employ a bicycle despite the lateness of the season. Now I found myself upon an apparently abandoned road which I had chosen as the shortest cut to Arkham. Overtaken by the storm at a point far from any town and confronted with no refuge save the antique and repellent wooden building which blinked with bleared windows from between two huge leafless elms near the foot of a rocky hill. Distant though it was from the remnant of a road, the house nonetheless impressed me unfavourably the very moment I espied it. Honest, wholesome structures do not stare at travellers so slyly and hauntingly. And in my genealogical researches, I had encountered legends of a century before which biased me against places of this kind. Yet the force of the elements was such as to overcome my scruples, and I did not hesitate to wheel my machine up the weedy rise to the closed door, which seemed at once so suggestive and secretive. I had somehow taken it for granted that the house was abandoned, yet as I approached it, I was not so sure. For though the walks were indeed overgrown with weeds, they seemed to retain their nature a little too well to argue complete desertion. Therefore, instead of trying the door, I knocked, feeling as I did so a trepidation I could scarcely explain. As I waited on the rough, mossy rock which served as a doorstep, I glanced at the neighbouring windows and the panes of the transom above me, and noticed that although old, rattling and almost opaque with dirt, they were not broken. The building, then, must still be inhabited despite its isolation and general neglect. However, my rapping evoked no response, so after repeating the summons, I tried the rusty latch and found the door unfastened. Inside was a little vestibule with walls from which the plaster was falling, and through the doorway came a faint but peculiarly hateful odour. I entered, carrying my bicycle, and closed the door behind me. Ahead rose a narrow staircase, flanked by a small door probably leading to the cellar, 
while to the left and right were closed doors leading to rooms on the ground floor. Leaning my cycle against the wall, I opened the door at the left and crossed into a small, low-ceilinged chamber, but brightly lighted by its two dusty windows and furnished in the barest and most primitive possible way. It appeared to be a kind of sitting room, for it had a table and several chairs, and an immense fireplace above which ticked an antique clock on a mantel. Books and papers were very few, and in the prevailing gloom I could not readily discern the titles. What interested me was the uniform air of archaism, as displayed in every visible detail. Most of the houses in this region I had found rich in relics of the past, but here the antiquity was curiously complete, for in all the room I could not discover a single article of definitely post-revolutionary date. Had the furnishings been less humble, the place would have been a collector's paradise. As I surveyed this quaint apartment, I felt an increase in that aversion first excited by the bleak exterior of the house. Just what it was that I feared or loathed I could by no means define, but something in the whole atmosphere seemed redolent of unhallowed age, of unpleasant crudeness, and of secrets which should be forgotten. I felt disinclined to sit down and wandered about examining the various articles which I had noticed. The first object of my curiosity was a book of medium size lying upon the table and presenting such an antediluvian aspect that I marvelled at beholding it outside a museum or library. It was bound in leather, with metal fittings, and was in an excellent state of preservation. Being altogether an unusual sort of volume to encounter in an abode so lowly, when I opened it to the titled page, my wonder grew even greater for it proved to be nothing less rare than Pichafeta's account of the Congo region, written in Latin from the notes of the sailor Lopez and printed at Frankfurt in 1598. I had often heard of this work, with its curious illustrations by the brothers de Bray, hence for a moment forgot my uneasiness in my desire to turn the pages before me. The engravings were indeed interesting, drawn wholly from imagination and careless descriptions, and represented negroes with white skins and Caucasian features. Nor would I soon have closed the book had not an exceedingly trivial circumstance upset my tired nerves and revived my sensation of disquiet. What annoyed me was merely the persistent way in which the volume tended to fall open of itself at plate 12, which represented in gruesome detail a butcher's shop of the cannibal Anzikis. I experienced some shame in my susceptibility to so slight a thing, but the drawing nevertheless disturbed me, especially in connection with some adjacent passages descriptive of Anziki gastronomy. I had turned to a neighbouring shelf and was examining its meagre literary contents, an 18th century bible, a pilgrim's progress of like period, illustrated with grotesque woodcuts and printed by the almanac maker Isaiah Thomas, the rotting bulk of Cotton Mather's Magnalia Christi Americana, and a few other books of evidently equal age, when my attention was aroused by the unmistakable sound of walking in the room overhead. At first astonished and startled, considering the lack of response to my recent knocking at the door, 
I immediately afterward concluded that the walker had just awakened from a sound sleep and listened with less surprise as the footsteps sounded on the creaking stairs. The tread was heavy, yet seemed to contain a curious quality of cautiousness, a quality which I disliked the more because the tread was heavy. When I had entered the room, I had shut the door behind me. Now, after a moment of silence, during which the walker may have been inspecting my bicycle in the hall, I heard a fumbling at the latch and saw the panelled portal swing open again. In the doorway stood a person of such singular appearance that I should have exclaimed aloud but for the restraints of good breeding. Old, white-bearded and ragged, my host possessed a countenance and physique which inspired equal wonder and respect. His height could not have been less than six feet, and despite a general air of age and poverty, he was stout and powerful in proportion. His face, almost hidden by a long beard which grew high on the cheeks, seemed abnormally ruddy and less wrinkled than one might expect. While over a high forehead fell a shock of white hair, little thinned by the ears. His blue eyes, though a trifle bloodshot, seemed inexplicably keen and burning. But for his horrible unkemptness, the man would have been as distinguished-looking as he was impressive. This unkemptness, however, made him offensive, despite his face and figure. Of what his clothing consisted I could hardly tell, for it seemed to me no more than a mass of tatters surmounting a pair of high, heavy boots, and his lack of cleanliness surpassed description. The appearance of this man and the instinctive fear he inspired prepared me for something like enmity, so that I almost shuddered through surprise and a sense of uncanny incongruity when he motioned me to a chair and addressed me in a thin, weak voice full of fawning respect and ingratiating hospitality. His speech was very curious, an extreme form of Yankee dialect I had thought long extinct, and I studied it closely as he sat down opposite me for conversation. Catched in the rain, be ye? He greeted. Glad you was nigh the house and had the sense to come right in. I calculate I was asleep, else I'd have heard you. I ain't as young as I used to be, and I need a powerful sight of naps nowadays. Traveling far? I ain't seen many folks along this road since they took off the Arkham stage. I replied that I was going to Arkham, and apologised for my rude entry into his domicile, whereupon he continued. Glad to see you, young sir. New faces is scarce around here, and I ain't got much to cheer me up these days. Guess you hail from Boston, don't you? i never been there, but I can tell a town man when I see him. We had one for district schoolmaster in 84, but he quit sudden and no one ever heard of him since. Here the old man lapsed into a kind of chuckle and made no explanation when I questioned him. He seemed to be in an aboundingly good humour, yet to possess those eccentricities which one might guess from his grooming. For some time, he rambled on with an almost feverish geniality, when it struck me to ask how he came by so rare a book as Pichafetta's Regnum Congo. The effect of this volume had not left me, and I felt a certain hesitancy in speaking of it. 
but curiosity overmastered all the vague fears which had steadily accumulated since my first glimpse of the house. To my relief, the question did not seem an awkward one, for the old man answered freely and volubly. Oh, that Africa book Captain Ebenezer Holt traded me that in 68. Him as is killed in the war? Something about the name of Ebenezer Holt caused me to look up sharply. I had encountered it in my genealogical work, but not in any record since the revolution. I wondered if my host could help me in the task at which I was labouring and resolved to ask him about it later on. He continued, Ebenezer was on a Salem merchantman for years and picked up a sight of queer stuff in every port. He got this in London, I guess. He used to like to buy things at the shops. I was up to his house once on the hill trading horses when I see this book. I relish the pictures, so he give it in on a swap. Tis a queer book. Here, let me get on my spect. The old man fumbled among his rags, producing a pair of dirty and amazingly antique glasses with small octagonal lenses and steel bows. Donning these, he reached for the volume on the table and turned the pages lovingly. Ebenezer could read a little of this. Tis Latin, but I can't. I had two or three schoolmasters read me a bit, and Passon Clark, him they say, got drowned in the pond. Can you make anything out of it? I told him that I could, and translated for his benefit a paragraph near the beginning. If I erred, he was not scholar enough to correct me, for he seemed childishly pleased at my English version. His proximity was becoming rather obnoxious, yet I saw no way to escape without offending him. I was amused at the childish fondness of this ignorant old man for the pictures in a book he could not read, and wondered how much better he could read the few books in English which adorned the room. This revelation of simplicity removed much of the ill-defined apprehension I had felt, and I smiled as my host rambled on. Queer how pictures can set a body thinking. Take this one here near the front. You ever seen trees like that with big leaves a-flopping over and down? And them men, they can't be Negroes. They drew beat at all. Kinder like Injuns, I guess, even if they be in Africa. Some of these here critters look like monkeys or half monkeys and half men. But I never heard of nothing like this. Here he pointed to a fabulous creature of the artist, which one might describe as a sort of dragon with the head of an alligator. But now I'll show you the best thing. over here now the middle. The old man's speech grew a trifle thicker, and his eyes assumed a brighter glow, but his fumbling hands, though seemingly clumsier than before, were entirely adequate to their mission. The book fell open almost of its own accord, and as if from frequent consultation at this place, to the repellent twelfth plate showing the butcher's shop amongst the Anzique cannibals. My sense of restlessness returned, though I did not exhibit it. The especially bizarre thing was that the artist had made his Africans look like white men. The limbs and quarters hanging about the walls of the shop were ghastly, while the butcher with his axe was hideously incongruous. But my host seemed to relish the view as much as I disliked it. What do you think of this? Ain't never see the like hereabouts, huh? 
I see this. I tell Dad Polk, that's something to stir you up and make your blood tickle. When I read in scripture about slaying, like them Midianites was slew, I kinder think things. But I ain't got no picture of it. Here a body can see all there is to it. I suppose tis sinful, but ain't we all born and living in sin? That feller been chopped up gives me a tickle every time I look at him. I have to keep looking at him. See where the butcher cut off his feet? That's his head on that bench with one arm side of it and to other arms on the ground side of the meat block. As the man mumbled on in his shocking ecstasy, the expression on his hairy, spectacled face became indescribable, but his voice sank rather than mounted. My own sensations can scarcely be recorded. All the terror I had dimly felt before rushed upon me actively and vividly, and I knew that I loathed the ancient and abhorrent creature so near me with an infinite intensity. His madness, or at least his partial perversion, seemed beyond dispute. He was almost whispering now, with a huskiness more terrible than a scream, and I trembled as I listened. As I say, tis queer how pictures sets you thinking. Do you know, young sir, I'm right sot on this and here. Atter I got the book off ebb, I used to look at it a lot. Especially when I heard Passon Clark rant on Sundays in his big wig. Once I tried something funny. Here, young sir, don't, don't get scared. All I done was to look at the picture before I killed the sheep from market. And killing the sheep was kind of more fun after looking at it. The tone of the old man now sank very low sometimes becoming so faint that his words were hardly audible. I listened to the rain, and to the rattling of the bleared small-paned windows, and marked a rumbling of approaching thunder quite unusual for the season. Once a terrific flash and peal shook the frail house to its foundations, but the whisperer seemed not to notice. Killing sheep was kind of more fun. But you know, don't quite satisfy. Queer how a craving gets a hold on you. As you love the almighty young man, don't tell nobody. But I swear to God, that picture began to make me hungry for victuals I couldn't raise nor buy. Here, sit still. What's ailing you? I didn't do nothing, only I wondered how it would be if I did. They say meat makes blood and flesh and gives you new life, so I wondered if twouldn't make a man live longer and longer if twas more the same. But the whisperer never continued. The interruption was not produced by my fright, nor by the rapidly increasing storm amidst whose fury I was presently to open my eyes on a smoky solitude of blackened ruins. It was produced by a very simple, though somewhat unusual, happening. 
The open book lay flat between us, with the picture staring repulsively upward. As the old man whispered the words, More the same. A tiny splattering impact was heard, and something showed on the yellow paper of the upturned volume. I thought of the rain, and of a leaky roof, but rain is not red. On the butcher shop of the Anzique cannibals, a small red spattering glistened picturesquely, lending vividness to the horror of the engraving. The old man saw it, and stopped whispering even before my expression of horror made it necessary saw it, and glanced quickly toward the floor of the room he had left an hour before. I followed his glance, and beheld just above us on the loose plaster of the ancient ceiling a large irregular spot of wet crimson, which seemed to spread even as I viewed it. I did not shriek or move, but merely shut my eyes. A moment later came the titanic thunderbolt of thunderbolts, blasting that accursed house of unutterable secrets, and bringing the oblivion which alone saved my mind. That, ladies and gentlemen, brings us to the end of tonight's stories. We hope you enjoyed them, and that you certainly don't have nightmares. Do join us next time, when we will have another double bill of Ex Oblivione and the Nameless City. Good evening.